hey, you know what? If you like this podcast that I appreciate you've not listened to yet because this is right at the start, but if you listen to this and find out you do like it, then afterwards go onto the computer or phone and search for The Lush Podcast. It's the podcast where Lush, unsurprisingly, The Lush Podcast, talk about the things that we think you'd be interested in hearing. So check it out. It's called The Lush Podcast. And the easy way to remember that, how I remember it, is it's a podcast made by Lush. Cool. Have a listen. I might even host one time. You never know. Probably not after this audition. (sighs) Done. Welcome to Tiny Revolutions with me, Tiff Stevenson, the podcast that asks if comedy can be a force for social change. Welcome to Tiny Revolutions and please put your hands together. I say please put your hands together. It's mainly just me clapping into a microphone. Hari Kondabalu. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm eating a donut right now, which is so poorly timed on uh, my part. uh, No, it's vegan donuts. They're very, very tasty. Um, It's hard to believe they're vegan. So I feel like minus calories, right? Yeah, right. That, that's, that's how it works. Sometimes I'll have a donut and then I'll eat a salad because then the salad negates the calories I ate earlier. Perfect. Right. You're a genius. Uh-huh. You should write a diet book. <laughs> <laughs> you need to make this happen. I think they've got one in France called the Ducan Diet and it says because 12 million French people can't be wrong and you think that's about how many voted for the National Front. But whatever. <laughs> uh, however you want to frame it, France. So welcome to our podcast. Thank uh, you. Our podcast uh, is all about tiny revolutions uh, based on the George Orwell quote that each joke is a tiny revolution. So the first question I have for you, I guess, is do you believe that comedy can be a force for positive social change? I think all art can be a force for positive social change and I think comedy is definitely an art form even if it doesn't always get treated as such and it's a, it's in some ways even more impactful because of its, its accessibility its directness um its uh, ability to you know it plays some people are not going to like to go to the theater when they see stand-up it's theater they don't think it's theater but that works to our benefit right they yeah. see somebody as accessible and as a potential friend and because there's a promise of a laugh they're willing to sit through the things we say, which is another reason why you better be good, especially when you're talking about sensitive topics or big political issues, because that line between rant and joke can be really slim, yeah. right? Joke and TED Talk. Exactly. <laughs> and so, but you, you're promising them that laugh. And if you, if you, you know, give them that laugh, they have no choice but to think about why they laughed. Like, why? I, I, do I believe this? You know, I'm questioning myself. Like... It's more complicated than I thought it was, which could go the other way, too. That could also be a negative thing. Like, why did I laugh at that racist joke? What does it say about me? But, you know, I think uh, if you're trying to create positive social change in the world, I don't think comedy uh, doesn't work to that end. I certainly think that I think it's dangerous when you create art to think about it actively as creating positive social change. Right. Because I think it affects how you write. It affects how you view yourself I think there's a we're egomaniacal enough to to also think I'm creating positive social change while I create work is just it's dangerous. I think the goal should always be, you know, how do I make people laugh? Am I being consistent with my voice? 
I'm educating myself, I'm informing myself, I find these things interesting, so I'm gonna talk about them because they're interesting. If they inform people, if they lead to a positive effect, if they're passed around and inspire others, that's great, that's a, that's a positive result. But I try not to go in with that. At the bare minimum, I go in with a do no harm. Right, like a doctor. Yes. I think that's right, though. <laughs> yeah, we should have a Hippocratic oath I, for the standards, <laughs> right? I mean, I feel like that is kind of always the goal. And then the frustration is like, it was just a joke. I'm just trying to make you laugh. I'm not trying to cause harm. But it's like people have such complex life experiences and journeys and like the world is not fair, which is why comedy is great. But that's also why like comedy can be kind of, for some people, kind of icky. I, I really like where you said the promise to laugh, almost like it's a contract that you've entered into with the audience. Mm. Because there is that moment, I don't think you should go in going, this is going to be a teaching moment for you all. Mm-hmm. We are going to teach you right now. And you go, no, I, no one's paid like 20 bucks to go to school for the night. That's right, that's right. <laughs> even when it's your tour show, even when it's your solo show. And I definitely, I do go in with the intention to make people think or to maybe explode a myth about something and sometimes to be provocative. Sure. I like to be provocative, but and there's that great Carlin quote where they say you're a shock comic and he says shock's just another form of surprise. All comedy is based on that. Right. But the idea of going in as a to teach people something in the first place is is probably the wrong avenue. Do you approach stuff by going when when you approach a routine or a joke? I know the way that I do it. I'm interested to know what your method is. Do you see something, a social injustice or a moment or something happen, something that makes you laugh and then respond with how you feel? Or do you write a joke first and then work from there? I mean, I think I do both. First of all, can I talk about the shock comment? Okay, yeah. I've been thinking a lot about that because I think there's some, I don't think Carlin was a shock comic. You know, I mean, I think it does him a disservice to do that. But I do believe in the idea that there are people who use shock for the sake of shock, mm. as opposed to shock to bring about a greater point. Like if I shock you and there is discomfort, that discomfort gives me an opportunity to make a joke that gets you out of that discomfort. And that's where it almost feels like a magic trick. Yes. How did I pull this out of my head? How are you laughing at this? But, you know, I've seen enough comics where it's like the, the punchlines, the shock and the groans and the discomfort. And that's the joke. And to me, it's like, Man, I saw two planes at the World Trade Center. What on earth is what on earth is going to be more shocking than that? What are you saying to me that is so uh, uh, you know huge and like terrible that I'm going to be shocked by it? I can be shocked all the time by reading the news. I can be shocked constantly. What I want is I want that shock to lead to something positive because in the real world we never get that. Sure. So that was just a quick thought on that. Yeah, no, that's that's a, a, a perfect way of describing it because there are people who do a shock. You often see it with new comics. They mm. come out and they go, what can I hit? Can I do rape? Can I be racist? Mm. Can I say something homophobic? Bang, bang, bang. And then we're in, you know, like, you know, 10 jokes down the line and you've just said the most horrific things you can think to say with no greater purpose apart from I haven't worked out how to be funny enough yet. Right. And it's it's teenagers testing their limits, essentially, when you're starting to do stand up. How far can I take this? What What will happen if I do this? And, and when it doesn't work the way you want, you get upset. And it's like, well, yeah. Because you didn't do it well, you know. There's a lot of comics who use shock and create that discomfort and then make something magical out of it. And they put themselves in a position, they dig a hole for them to climb out of. And I think that's incredible. Um, In terms of how I write jokes, I think it varies, you know. I think a lot of my jokes come from things that anger me, from injustice and unfairness. Right. From pain, like this hurt me. 
whether it's personal or something else, like it hurts me the world is like this. And if it starts at that point, chances are I'm going to write about it if I feel that. So sometimes it's it's like that. It's like this is happening. I'm reacting reacting to it in real time and writing it down. And there's something here. There's a punchline here. I have to build the structure around it. Right. Um, sometimes it's thinking about life experiences, which I think often, you know, it's hard to be like, I'm going to, you know, write about sexism today. I'm going to write about colonialism today. Like, it's hard to do that. But like, you think about life experiences and, you know, that's, that's chock, stories are chock full of different things that are happening, right? The dynamics of a story, like why is this person behaving this way? Why is this person like that? What led to this and well, it's that? also a micro thing that can yeah. begin with you that then becomes a macro thing. Absolutely. To see what it says about the world in a bigger sense. And that's yes. how I sort of write. If it's a personal injustice or something that's happened to me or I've noticed some sexism or an injustice or I've even noticed my own unconscious bias creep up and kind of go, oh, that's new. What's that? Right. Where did that come from? Why am I feeling that way today? You know, and, and, and pulling that apart and kind of going out, 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 out. Right. But I think there are some comics who start out and then maybe work in or there are some that start out and never go in at all. Yes. I mean, I definitely started out and I'm recently I've been trying to go more in because in is scary. Yeah. It's easier to talk about an issue abstractly, intellectually, um, with no with some stake in it, but not uh, any clarity about what that stake is. Like, you know, if I talk about like this racist thing or that racist thing and this is in the news, like that's that's great. And I think I've done a fair bit of that. And some of it's theoretical. But, you know, when I started talking about like depression and my family and their immigration history and stuff like that, that's actually putting myself in the story, making the issues more relatable. But it's also scarier. You know, it's just frightening. Like, oh, my God, you know who I am. Like before, when you didn't like it, it felt like you didn't like my ideas. Now it feels like you don't like me. I mean, that's yes. so much harder. Yeah, it's, it becomes very, very personal. And then you mentioned putting your family in the story because um, you mentioned your mum just before we came on to, uh, to record the podcast. So I'll come back to that. But is there a point where your family's fear because my mum I'll give you an example of when it's happened to me and I know that this will definitely have happened to you if we touch upon your the problem with the poo but uh I I wrote an article about being pro-choice and having uh, an abortion when I was 17 which obviously my mum was aware of knew about my dad knew because I'd addressed it subsequently in a show in Edinburgh However, it went out into The Guardian, it went to Guardian America, mm. and I got back a lot of stuff. And then one of them, they called me a murderess, which I thought was, I took it as a, a quite cool, funny thing, because I was like, I won't let you have that power. <laughs> right, 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 like, right, right, right. Like that when women do it, it has to have a special name. <laughs> right, 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 right. Uh, just yeah, <laughs> murderess. And not that I'm saying that's what I did, but I was just like, I, uh, it made me laugh. And then Catherine Ryan, I think, ended up putting it on some of her tour merchandise because it made her laugh. So we kind of took it back and went, we take that thing that you've thrown over here and go no actually but it made my mum panic she was like I just don't think you should talk about this anymore I get worried I'm frightened for you because that's out there in the public domain and and I think you should stop talking about it for a little while and that's the one time that she's said to me that she's been worried about something I'm saying on stage Mm. so has that happened with your family oh yeah oh especially my mother like she's like uh, I mean post 9-11 it was already like that the atmosphere of America in terms of hate crimes and deportations and detentions and that anger, that raw anger, like that lasted for years after 9-11. So 
already like at the start of my career there was some like you know I knew I was pressing some buttons and I'd have people yell and walk out and you know I think when three three years uh, let's see, let's see, tw- 2007 or eight I remember uh, I was talking about the Islamic Community Center that was uh, being built in in New York and they were calling it the Ground Zero Mosque if you remember that story and yes. there was all that controversy and I was talking about how it's not a mosque it's a community center like Jewish community center like a YMCA or whatever it's similar to that and it has a, a religious component I was like breaking it down part of the setup and somebody started screaming at it screaming at me like it is uh, a, a mosque they're terrorists it's just the straight up like the 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 caricature that I could have made up was in existence. You know what I mean? Like well, sometimes someone go if if I wrote this, people would go, I don't believe exactly. that they're not real. Right, Trump's president. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think that uh, you know for, for the audience, it illustrated everything I'd been saying in the hour because it was at the end of the show. And then he reaches out to me on Facebook and says, "You think that you're going to get away with this? You don't know when I, when you're going to see me again, and they have to increase security." And that was a decade ago, and. And since then, it's like, you know, I still get threats and I'll still get people trying to scare me. And I don't tell my mom most of this stuff and she doesn't know. And it, it has been fine because as long as I she doesn't know. But recently, I'm of all the things to put people over the edge, I made that documentary, The Problem with Apu, last year, which is about the cartoon character Apu from The Simpsons and what it felt like to be... Um, a South Asian kid with only one representation and also the history of like racism and minstrelsy in America and also, you know, an issue that I think we all talk about. What does it feel like to be a fan of someone or something? And it's more complicated because there's another aspect of them that bothers you, right? Yes, it's like a personal disappointment for something that you love. A hundred percent, which is relatable. And most people didn't see the film, uh, which makes the criticism even more absurd, you know, like getting criticized in countries where the film has not aired. Um, But, you know, there's been some talk about getting rid of the character, which is not what I wanted, but there's talk about getting rid of Apu. And since then, over the last month and a half, I've been getting multiple death threats a day, like from all over the world. Like it's really, when you press the translate button on Twitter or Google or Facebook. God, it's a bummer when it's a death threat. <laughs> when you, when you like, don't. Is this a compliment? Yes, or? exactly. And it's like, oh, no, you want to kill me. Oh, I totally did not think that. It's like I've been learning Spanish as I've been going along, but a lot of it's from South America, which is so strange. Uh, but uh, That's you, bizarre. Yeah, somebody uh, made a fake tweet and posted it and said that claimed it was for me. And my tweet said something like, you Argentinians and Peruvians stay out of this Apu business. This is our problem. I'm like, why would I do that? <laughs> why would I go after Argentinians and Peruvians? I have no interest in this. I don't want to ma- like, why on earth would anybody do that? Why would I pick a fight? With two random countries. Yes. And and that began the whole thing. You're not Donald Trump. Right, right, right. <laughs> I mean I was I mean, I felt good that Brazil was out of it until last week. Now the Brazilians are in. Maybe the Spanish got translated to Portuguese or whatever, but like it's all of a sudden it's the whole continent. I see where people are from. It's like this is every country in South America now. Um they had to increase security um for shows in New York before I left and so far here, it's been fine, but it's just, I hate that. It's so stupid. And my mom, who, you know, follows me on Twitter and, and sees the stuff, and I tell her not to, I can't hide it from her if she sees a whole list of, you know, th- you know, ways people are going to kill me, or there's tons of memes 
of like, hey, here's my head and Marge running it o- running it over with a car, and here's, you know, somehow like the Japanese chef like cutting my head off in The Simpsons, or like gruesome, poorly yeah. photoshopped, I must also yeah. say, because they're never around the head. They're always like these weird squares where you can see the background of the original picture. But nonetheless, the photoshopping is secondary here. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's just that shit is terrible, and I think it's really hard for my parents who, you know. They already had to deal with the idea of comedy is not a safe career in terms of its stability. Right. And it's a risk. And being an artist is is a, is a hard choice. It's a hard road. And success is fleeting. But death? Who thinks death? Yeah. Well, I, I was once asked what's the biggest risk I've ever taken. I said being a working class person mm. in the performing arts. That's, oh, that's <laughs> you know, with, brutal. With the, and right. Yeah, yeah. And so it's it's anyone that is not this kind of dominant mainstream sort of straight white male voice here, uh, public, public school educated, you know, that tends to be the dominant voice. And if you come for or attack that which they are associated with, people respond in ways that are... Rather than taking a breath and going, maybe it's worth thinking about the possibility that there could be a problem here. And when it's done with love, because I know it's a show you love. And I remember I, I remember seeing Nish talk about you talking about that because he's a big, a huge fan of The Simpsons. Yeah. And he was really annoyed when they got Lisa Simpson to address it Ugh, in the show. That's that uh, killed me too, yeah. So, so you made the documentary. And so then we were talking about coming... And a documentary is different to stand-up as well, you know, although the, the two can cross over a lot. What was your... What was the starting point for this? Was it, it's time to talk about representation and why is this the only way that you know, currently someone like me is being represented? No, because it, it was such a, it's been 30 years, you know. So for yeah. me, it was less of a reactive, we need to talk about this now because it's so crucial at this point. It was important. 20- it was more for your childhood. and yeah, Well, yeah. it was somewhat. I mean, it's funny. I first did the show, uh, did the, the topic, discussed the topic on W. Kamau Bell, is a great American comic. Yes, I love, I love He's him. He's wonderful. Very, very good. On his old TV show, Totally Biased, which mm-hmm. I used to write for and be a correspondent on. And, you know, I was doing a thing about um, Mindy Kaling having a show. So this was years ago for the first time, like her first show and how groundbreaking that is and going over the history of Indian representation in the U.S. And, you know, Apu came up and I, made, I wrote some jokes about it. And that got the strongest reaction. And I initially didn't even want to do the piece because I told Kamal, like, this feels corny. Like, this has been talked about to death. This is like 2012. It's like, uh, you know, who doesn't know that Apu's kind of racist? And he's like, what are you talking about? Nobody, like, your community has talked about this for 20 years, but nobody else talks about this or thinks about this. Like, this is new. So I put that up there. I, I do the bit. It goes online. It goes somewhat viral and becomes a, a discussion. And then a few years later, I... I know uh, there was some network that was looking for documentaries and I started thinking about what would I make a documentary about and the Apu thing seemed really interesting because there was such a discussion about representation and how that works and Apu is a really like fascinating example because he wouldn't be created in, in the way he is today but he's grandfathered in because it's The Simpsons. Right. Nobody thought The Simpsons was going to last 30 years. And all of a sudden, you have this really bizarre, stereotypical character, which to their own, they admit, like when they originally had it. he's not a three-dimensional. No. And they've tried to improve it since, and it's been great. But initially, like, he wasn't meant to be a regular character. He was a one-off joke, but he got so popular, they had to write for him. And so, like, 
to to talk about something in terms of where were we back then or this was okay what are the impacts of this where are we now what you know c- can we try to figure out how we got there because you know it, it's like a you know a mosquito and nectar right it's it survived all these years still intact because it, you know somehow it, it's preserved by the simpsons and so i just thought it would be an interesting example and plus of course there was a personal stake you know because it had an impact on my childhood and as someone who talks about race and representation the time being what it is it seemed perfect plus no one's ever criticized any aspect of the simpsons before which right. to me as a comedian it's like whoa well, that's that's Interesting, isn't it? That's that's material no one's touched Because before. they're seen as an American family. Right. People view them with that level of attachment and will defend it, it would seem. Well, it's it's frustrating when the comedians behave that way. When I, like my peers are saying stuff like that. I'm like, you fight for free speech to the death. If I criticize this cartoon, which I love as well, that's where your line is? That's where you're like, you can't do that? And then you say, I'm politically correct. How is it political correctness to go after a thing you find interesting, like just like everyone else? And, you know, I still love the show. Loving something doesn't mean that you can't critique it. Can't be critical of it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's, me, fact, that's another example why you love it so much, because you're willing to critique it. It's worth your time. Yes. You care about it enough to be disappointed when it doesn't get it right. Right. So for me, it was it was a lot of that. So... It's really funny because I people have said like, oh, it took it took you thirty years to finally complain about this. Like it's offensive now. I'm like, I you know I couldn't do anything before because I was eight. Yeah. Like, what did you expect <laughs> me to do? I'm so sorry that I didn't release this documentary right. as a child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of mad. It's kind of like why bring it up now? This happens loads with me too. Yeah. Why bring it up now? Was it wasn't a problem back then? It was a problem. You know, it back was then, a problem. Yeah. It's just now I'm able to say yeah. this is a problem. Which it's such a frustrating thing, the privilege of not even realizing, no, we weren't allowed to talk. Or if we did speak, nobody would hear us. I mean, this is such an incredible time and, and it to me it's like, all right, let's cover this old history. Let's nip it in the bud and we'll move on. And that's what I thought I was doing. And then we'll we'll just move on to the next thing. And I don't think I, I realized that it was gonna have the reaction it did, especially the angry reaction. And also, and this was foolish on my part, I just assumed people would see the film and the argument would be about the film. And then you realize it has nothing to do with the film. Nobody saw the film. It was about what they think the film's about. They think it's about this idea of everything's politically correct. All our heroes have to be destroyed. We can't enjoy anything. You're destroying my child. It's like, that's not what the film, no, that is not. It's like there's a debate that happens every week about political correctness and free speech and social justice warriors. And every single week, like something has to fill that blank. It doesn't matter what it is. Yes. And so I filled a blank for a while. And that's, you know, it's very frustrating because as someone who likes nuanced discussion, I thought I was creating it and you can't. You can't create nuance for people that don't want to hear nuance. That's right. For people that see stuff in black and white, you cannot bring them technicolor. And, and who are not even willing to even think about the possibility. If you watch a thing and then you think about it, and then you have a point. I still might disagree with you, but at least there's a, a shared source of information. There's like, oh, okay, we're talking about these things within these parameters, and you've already covered this, so let's talk about the nitty-gritty. If you don't do the basic reading, if you don't do your homework, what are we even talking about? I think smart people want to be proved wrong. I think so, yeah. I, I think they're up for a good debate. A smart person will want to be challenged, and pro- because otherwise, what are you holding on to? Yes. 
you know so i think the discussion of ideas you go oh i didn't think that okay prove prove me wrong then right right put to me your argument oh i hadn't thought about it that way before yeah and that at at best is what i'm trying to do with stand up right, to kind right. of offer that alternative uh, alternative viewpoint to allow someone to go oh i hadn't thought thought about it that way before i remember once doing kind of a rowdy club gig in south london up the creek and a guy in his sort of 60s like a real ruddy faced like geezer come over and pinched my cheeks and went I really like I've thought about things that way before and I'd done sort of feminism I never say oh and by the way I'm doing feminism because I think if you have to say what it That's is exactly you, right. you failed right yes but he really engaged with it and I think that is at its very best that is what comedy can do it can take someone who never thought about what the problem with a poo is and make them go oh Actually, yeah, I haven't thought. You know, I've sort of always seen that because my fiance is Scottish. So obviously there's groundskeeper Willie. Yeah, yeah. And he loves The Simpsons, you know, but you can watch that and go, come on. Right, 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 <laughs> right, 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 right. So I think everyone can watch it and kind of go, oh, yeah, like though that joke there, it, it, you know, or that angle is for some for a show that can be so intelligent. There are points where it can be like cheap or a bit tone deaf. Right. For, for, for such a brilliant, you know, essentially it's a soap. I want to call it a soap. Huh. Because it's been around that long and I, I feel people respond to The Simpsons not like it's a cartoon or not like it's a piece of satire. They respond to it almost like it's a soap. That level of in, investment and almost like blind, yeah, blind thinking that I associate with people who watch, you know, where they get invested in the lives of the people yeah. and they feel like you're attacking one of their people. <laughs> right, right, right. Which is so... I mean, I, I think especially with the South America stuff I've been saying, you know, I've been getting pictures... Of, people have been sending me pictures of beef, of cows getting murdered because I'm Hindu. And so they think that will insult me because everything they know about Indians is from The Simpsons, which is my point exactly, yeah, right? Yeah. So, you know, to them, I'm attacked. They're like, you're never going to be funny as Apu. And it's like, Apu's not real. <laughs> this is a cartoon character. Yeah. And But that to them is they're so invested because there's nothing else. And that's what they grew up with. But the idea of me, you know, as a human being, a having more, person. more in common with them than the cartoon, it, it's... It's past them. And, and that is like kind of the point of the film. Like this is the danger when you have limited images and those images end up coloring people people's perceptions of a whole group because they just don't have the experience, the exposure. Like, you know, I grew up in New York City. Like there is, you know, I grew up with a great deal of self-esteem in part because I had other brown people around me. It was an international city. Everyone was from everywhere. Even the white people I met, they never said they were white. Not in New York. You say you're Polish or Scottish or Irish. You know, even if you've never been there before. Who introduces themselves as white? That's a good that's question, the weird, That's yeah, the weirdest yeah. thing. Like, I've yeah. never, like, when I went to, like, New England in the Midwest, I'd hear people say, I'm just white. I'm like, that. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that, that's right. so, like, white person, I don't know what that means. What does that mean? <laughs> like, there's just a complete deletion, like a deletion of, like, history. And I'm like, yeah, but there, you didn't just show up magically. Like, there was all this history and there's all these people. And you and, came and took some land. Right, right. And, and there's that, right. And all of that just completely gets, you know, wiped away. So I, I just find it. It, it's just so weird to me, all of it. Yeah. yeah. And so the intent, obviously, was to just explore the question. Yes. I presume for the documentary. And then this happens. And then how did you feel when they responded on the show? I was bummed. I was bummed because of the, the nature of the response. Mm -hmm. Because, it, you know, just having Lisa Simpson talk about political correctness 
and how things that used to be great are now seen as politically correct. What can you do? It's like Lisa would never say that. It's it, that was, I think, what Nish said in his thing yes. that made him so angry. The ultimate social justice warrior herself, like the original. Why yeah. on earth would she take that stance? It wasn't her, like, the consistent It's a betrayal the of the character. It's a betrayal of the character so the producers could find a way to speak through someone else. Because Hank Azaria didn't know that was going to be in the script, apparently. He had already done his lines, and that was added right before it w- went out. They added a couple of scenes. So that's a producer and writer's decision. I mean, the char- like Hank had no say in the matter. And I, I find that really upsetting, too, because it's like, he's the one who's taking all the heat, and you put this in. Like, he, he's the one who has to take it. So it just feels completely, you know, just... And am I right in thinking that yeah. Hank was one of the people who said he would step down and do less characters, or he was happy to... Yeah, yeah, which to me, like, at this point, I don't see the point of any of it. I just say, like, keep doing what you're doing. At this point, what's what's really the point? If you want to, within the structure of the show, make it more interesting, because they're doing the same plots over and over at this point. Like, I've seen it recently. It's like, oh, it's another Barton Lisa detective story. I've seen these episodes. I still love it, but it's like, okay, I, I know this already. Um, but, like... You know, create it like having his kids talk, like having him have a, an adventure that takes him out of the quickie mart and maybe like gives him some upward mobility. Things change. I mean, they got rid of what Reverend Lovejoy's wife. No, was it? No, no, it was Ned Flanders' wife. They got rid yes. of Maud. They got rid of, uh, I think they got rid of Maud not because of like a death of the character, like the, the voice. They got rid of Maud because there was a salary dispute. Right. So it wasn't even like, you know, like, so for all their talk of integrity and consistency, like, that wasn't, yeah. you know, about integrity. So there's so so many interesting things to do with the character. So for me, like with Hank, what I think I took away from it is he said that the most important thing is we have to listen to South Asian Americans and Indian Americans about their experiences, their unique experiences in this country as as valid and important. And really, more than anything, that's all anybody wants, just this idea that we exist and our, our experiences might be different, but they're part of the, the whole the whole thing. Yeah, and also, even an acknowledgement, if they went, like you say, from the beginning, they didn't know it was going to last as long when it was on Tracy Ullman's show, wasn't it? Yes. Um, so they've kind of sort of shoehorned this character in. To acknowledge that would be fine, to go, we didn't really know, because some of the characters are based on real people, which I said to you before the podcast, which yeah, you yeah, were yeah. previously unaware of, that, that Mo is based on Rich Hall. Which is unbelievable to me and makes so much sense now. Yes. That's yeah. Like, yeah, that, his voice is, yes. Yeah. So, so if you are kind of using real people as an inspiration, why could you not go back and kind of go, actually, let's flesh a poo out let's make him a real person with real hopes and dreams and a life and make him 3d i know it's a cartoon so it's never going to be truly 3d but you know like why why can't we do that but i guess that's kind of asking when when people feel like they're um i often think this about privilege i think if if someone has had privilege for so long and then someone else comes along like voices, more diverse voices. And by that, I mean uh, diversity of race. Mm. I mean that by diversity of, you know, gender. Yes. When voices are coming through that are not this kind of dominant white male thing. If I'd had privilege for that long and I feared it was going to be taken away, you know, uh, I, I would probably try and there might be, maybe, yeah. I don't know, I'm not them. <laughs> so I can't figure out why they would be as draw this kind of line in the sand I mean to me it's interesting because I've thought about it is it privilege but at this point 30 years in like millions and millions and millions of dollars later 
like you know what was once a countercultural show on Fox, which was a new network, is now like you know that's the status quo. That's the the longest running, most important global comedy show ever. That's incredible. Translated in languages all over the world, dubbed, like you know, subtitled. It's 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 a global phenomenon. So they're set. They're now like old rich white men, right? right. So to them, there's nothing they can lose in terms of of that. I think there's a fragility though. There's a white fragility of I've never been questioned before. This person's bringing up race. Like this is making us look a little awkward. It was on a basic cable network, my documentary. It was 47 minutes long. The ratings weren't particularly high. And more people certainly talked about it than actually saw it. So to me, it was like, how dare you question us? How dare you make us look bad in any way? And that was the response to it. That's an arrogance. That's a peculiar kind of arrogance, isn't it? Because I I see that not just with... um, with what they do there, but what's happened with the Me Too movement recently and certain people having opportunities to address what they've done. But then some kind of arrogance in them goes, try it, see what happens. Right. And that's what this feels like. It's, it's a privilege, but it's also an arrogance. Because nothing happens to them. I mean, they're, they're, it doesn't. nothing will change. And uh, they don't need to, you know, I mean, honestly, like they, I don't get why they replied to be perfectly honest, because I made a documentary on, again, on basic cable, like, uh, I, I wasn't trying to troll them, but if I was, I won because you responded. <laughs> yeah. Like, why yeah. would on earth would some, you know, that means I affected They've you. They've drawn more attention to your project. Right. And unfortunately, that also means that, like, they're benefiting because it's drawing more attention to The Simpsons. Right. This is the most relevant they've been in years. I, I haven't seen The Simpsons written about anywhere since, until I made this documentary. Like papers all over the world, like the controversy of some sort with this 30-year-old show. I mean, that's the best thing that could have happened for them. I weirdly remember seeing The Simpsons quoted in um, newspapers in Ireland. Huh. Irish newspapers do a very interesting thing. They they consistently quote Tommy Tiernan, who's one yeah, of Yeah, of course. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, He's like, Jesus. That, I mean, it's incredible. I've seen Tommy perform in England, but seeing him perform in Ireland is just, it's almost a transcendental <laughs> experience. Yeah. But he is, is seen as almost godlike there. So he's constantly quoted, like, as Tommy Tiernan said, or occasionally, as Lisa Simpson said, as, da, 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 yeah, you yeah. know, and you're like, oh, wow. So they they quote it in the newspapers there. Like it's still, you know. So there, there is that, the power of being so international and, and worldwide known. It's a bit of a David and Goliath situation. And the fact that they can't realise who they are in that battle is is a shame and that may change that may, did you regret it no regrets i i've thought about like do i regret it just because like after a while you get so worn out and and it's weird you know like i didn't talk about it on stage for a long time because i hated the fact that i had a netflix special that got released like six to eight months later and i thought the news cycle would be done and then we could focus on you know, what I actually do, like that was a side project I did. This is, you know, you're a stand-up. More than anything else in your life, I'd imagine the same is true with you, Tiff. Yeah. Like, you're a stand-up. I do this, this, and this, but I'm a stand-up. That's what I do. And I also do podcasts, and I also do film, and I also... But at the end of the day, if I'm not on stage and seats aren't getting filled, then I failed, because that's what it's ultimately about. So to me, for, for, to, to have to talk about it even further after for six months more, it was... It was hard, and I didn't want to talk about it in my act. And, you know, I've been at the Soho for the last 
week and I have one more week to go. And I've been talking about it finally on stage. And it's the funniest stuff in the set so far because there's an honesty and a frustration and it's not hypothetical because it's this weird situation that only I am in. And it's it's somewhat cathartic because I get to actually talk about how the responses that I've gotten to this thing are ridiculous, especially online. And and it speaks to like people not wanting to have, like what we said before, a real discussion, an informed conversation. And um, there, there are moments I certainly have regretted it. And now I feel like, no, like I can't control how people view the work I've done. And all I can do is create the next thing. Yes, you can only control your aspect of it. And that's such a nice way of looking at it. Yeah, You, you can control that. You can't control how it's received and we can't withstand up either and then sometimes something like this comes along and reminds you that that's that's the case and I I did a video for The Economist recently and it was about where we are a year on from Me Too and uh, I I had I had men's rights activists come from it I had threats I had death threats I had you know, you should have your clitoris cut off. Um, it it became, and it was such a like this woman clearly hates men, and I'm like, this is so ridiculous to me because I'm, I'm I'm invested in men. I've got shares in woke bros. I'm, gonna, like, <laughs> like, I'm fully invested. I'm engaged. I have a fiance. I have a stepson. I love men, and it's really important that we can all learn that we all talk about consent and that we all have a really yeah. engaged and important conversation on both sides. But you know, and that was part of my problem with the Me Too discussion. I felt like it lacked such nuance when we make Louis C.K. the same as Aziz Ansari or the same as Bill Cosby, and then we're talking about them all as if they're the same when actually they're all quite different. And there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of grey area and there's a lot to be discussed about consent on both sides and lots of learning to be had. Mm. I guess when we reduce stuff to hashtags, it's a problem as well. But you have to have the kind of shortness or quickness for some kind of movement to take fire. I mean, that's the thing. Like Movements don't always work with nuance, right? Because when you're just trying to be heard, nuance ends up slowing you down in a weird way right when you're pushing forward and then you try to sort out the nuance later but so i kind of get like you know when you're initially you're angry and then it takes a while to like slow down let's actually see it but like you know after so many years you know to finally be able to speak like this i can imagine there's a ton of like let's get this all out now and and that's yeah and that's why i totally get the the anger and the frustration and i've I've been in situations and I've had feelings and I've, you know, what happened last year was very triggering for a lot of women, I think, because we all went through our experiences of what had happened to us. And then you start to get to a point where you go, there's actually too many for me to list Mm. that go from minor, small events to big, catastrophic, awful, impactful, life-changing events. You know, they run the gamut from that, from a bit of everyday sexism, right. you know, to uh, th- this person is a, is, is a rape survivor or, you know, this woman died. As well, it actually made me think of uh, the civil rights movement there. I just sort of had a moment of thinking about Martin Luther King versus Malcolm X, mm. how you choose to move forward with your protests and, and drive social change. And their their opposing views that one person believed that that nonviolence and and love was the answer, and the other person said any means necessary right. to 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 achieve your your ends. And, and they work and they're intertwined, right? Yeah. Like and, and definitely towards the end of King's life, he was definitely getting closer, some small steps towards the Malcolm X stance. And by the end of Malcolm X's 
life, you know, after he'd gone to Mecca, he had seen it much differently. And I think his uh, journey through Islam made him a much uh, more connected person in terms of like, we're all God's children. So how, how do we make this work? So but but I think you need that like fire and ice, right? You need the give and take. Sure. Yeah. I, I think I read quite a lot of Maya Angelou when I was at school. And that was mm. one of the interesting things that I noticed because she worked, she knew Malcolm and she knew Martin Luther yeah, King as well. Yeah. And she was always about forgiveness. She was always about forgiving the person that has hurt you, that has attacked you, that has taken something from you. Um, and I found that really interesting. But I also see the other side of the argument. I remember doing a podcast just after the Harvey Weinstein uh, stuff broke. I think it was Guilty Feminist. And we were talking about how Harvey Weinstein had been described as this kind of like fat pig by someone. That was the description they'd used. And Deborah said, I don't think it's okay to do that. And I said, I think it's okay for the victim of a crime to describe their attacker or the perpetrator in any kind of terms they want right. until they decide they don't want to. You know, right, like, right, right. like that she was kind of like, I don't like the idea of us calling him ugly or fat or unattractive. And I was like, I think it's within the rights of the person hmm. that that's happened to, to be able to say that. I don't think there's a moment of them going, you know, if you wanted to say he was repulsive because someone who's attacking you and raping you would be repulsive yes. to you. You know, so there was an interesting sort of point there of that that um, that was about expelling anger and 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 being very real and visceral. Um, and then I hear sometimes with movements like, why should we control our anger? We're done with being nice, you know, with something like the Black Lives Matter movement. And I understand that as well of people going, no, we're done being nice. Right. We've we've tried to do it this way, and it's just not working anymore. Especially so depending, we're going to be angry. And also because of how egregious it is, just like the. The killing of unarmed black men and women, like, you know, like, I don't want to, like, can we just stop that? <laughs> it's like, the, the, yeah. the, it's a very clear request also. I was thinking about, um, the, you know, the conversation we we're having a little while back and you asked me, like, uh, do I regret doing the documentary and all that? And I, at the end of the day, I don't because I know I'm right. Like, I know I'm right. Like, I know at the end of the day when people have heard of The Simpsons and don't watch it with the same like ferocity because everything at some point loses you know what i mean like it, everything loses steam at some point and life moves on and there's new art and more nuanced stuff gets made i know that people will be like oh he was right yeah that's right i don't understand why that was an issue why were they debating that how come there was a fight over that like this is a very obvious point and I feel like that's just inevitable. I truly believe that's inevitable. So it's just a matter of like, I'll take this now, but I'm not going to look bad in about 10 years, I think, if not so, even sooner than that, probably. That's good. There's yeah. a legacy, isn't there? There's something that comes after in the immediate when it dies down and we look back and we go, actually, there was one person that stood up and said, here's it, what the problem with this is. Right. And also like, well, that was a really simple point. Why is everyone yelling at him? He was just saying a very obvious thing that we all agree with right now. Well, here's, uh, interestingly, where we come back to what the kind of point of the podcast is, I yeah. guess, is is about can comedy be a force for social change? Um, because your documentary and your stand-up are being used in high school uh, at the moment and being shown to people. Um, so so that your work has made a difference there. Oh, yeah. I mean, every time I hear about it, the documentary of my stand-up being shown in high schools or colleges or grad schools, it's always a shock. Like it also part for there's a part of me that's like, 
this is how we should be spending our classroom time. There is that part of me that's like, hey, is this really going to be effective? But then I, I hear the stories of like kids writing papers and being able to understand that because, you know, stand-up's great strength is taking complex things and making them more digestible. Um, sometimes you lose complexity, but you hope stand-up keeps enough of the complexity where people like really understand something for the first time. It's a great 101. And so the idea that like uh, it's been able to do that is is again not the intention like we talked about earlier I just I just this is what bothers me and this is what I'm trying to deal with and get through and and this is my defense mechanism and art form and and it's amazing that it's able to do other things too. Your art's been taught in school. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And also I believe great stand up and your stand up is great is is like philosophy. Yes. So you can use it to explain all these philosophical principles and yes. ideas and there's a lot of moral relativism in it as well and um and that I think that's why it's a really useful tool for people to look and understand nuance. Thank you for coming on the podcast. You Tiff, have thanks. been incredible the perfect guest for the podcast it's so so nice to be on thank you so much for having me thank you so much for coming also from Lush Podcast the John Robb tapes punk legend John Robb digs through his cassette tapes to bring you exclusive interviews with other musical icons some are from the vault and some are brand spanking new find the John Robb tapes wherever you find podcasts and on the Lush Player (laughs) 